So it's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The Brothers Grimm tell the story of a fisherman and his wife who live in a tumble-down shack on the edge of a lake. One day the fisherman catches a flounder, but he lets it go because the flounder speaks to him and says, I'm actually an enchanted prince, and if you try and eat me, I won't taste very nice. Uh, so he throws it back, actually it's by the sea, not lake, throws it back into the sea. And when he gets home and tells his wife, she grumbles, she gives him a really hard time over it. Why didn't you ask for a wish? That's the least you could have do, she says. Go back. Go back and call to the fish and and get him to grant us a wish. At least we could be living in a decent cottage instead of this hovel that we're living in now. So he goes back and he calls to the flounder. The flounder comes back and he asks the flounder if his wish. The flounder says, go back. You'll find your wife living in a cottage. He goes back and there she is sitting in a cottage. But she's not happy. Why did I only ask for a cottage? We, we could be living in a, in a palace fit for a king. Go back. I want to live in a palace fit for a king. And so it goes on. After a palace fit for a king, she wants to be emperor, then pope. And at last she says, go back. She wakes up in the morning, sees the sunrise. Who makes a sunrise? I want to be God, she says. I want to be the one to make the sunrise and set the moon to appear in the sky. Go back and say to the flounder, I want to be God. And each time the fisherman goes back, the sea is worse and the the sky is more oppressive and he's more and more scared. Last time he goes back and says, my wife says she wants to be God. And the flounder says, go back. You'll find her exactly where you started. And he goes back and there she is, sitting in the tumble-down shack where they began first of all. If the story has a moral, arguably it's surely that it's folly not to value what you have because you already want more than you've already got. Value what you've got. Don't diss it because you want something else. And the scripture says, if riches increase, don't set your heart on them because there's no satisfaction down that road. The ambition of the fisherman's wife reaches its zenith when she wants to be God. This is the highest point she thinks she could ever possibly attain. But she doesn't get there. There may be an echo of the story of Adam and Eve in Grimm's fairy tale because the serpent tells Eve, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. You will know the difference between good and evil. And part of the attraction in eating the fruit isn't only that it looks attractive and it looks really, really nice to taste, but actually that idea of gaining divine wisdom. Sense is God keeping us down? Is God holding us back? Is God keeping us in our place? We could be so much greater if we, if we weren't restricted by what God said. And the temptation is a half-truth, as these things often are. Eating the apple does bring the knowledge of good and evil. But it also brings death and destruction. 
rather than equality with God. To think that we could be on a par with God is even remotely possible, is, is the height of hubris and, and, and excess pride. Imagining yourself greater than you could ever possibly become. The knowledge of good and evil was lethal to mortal human beings. The woman in Grimm's fairy tale is grasping, she's greedy, whatever she has, it's never enough to satisfy her, not even being Pope. She is the embodiment of someone who wants material possessions so urgently and excessively, she's willing to be ruthless to get whatever it is she sets her heart on. As such, she is the antithesis, the precise opposite of Jesus, as he is portrayed in these verses from Philippians. And some people would set up a contrast between Jesus and Philippians 2 and Adam and Eve who think that they could be equal with God. They could have the knowledge of good and evil like God. They could have divine wisdom. If only they, they branch out by themselves and they overstep the mark and they fall. Jesus is already by very nature God. He has it all. He is at the top of the pile. And the New International Version talks about equality with God as something that he wasn't grasping. Talk, but although it talks about equality with God as something to be grasped, the, the translation more accurately probably refers to Jesus' own attitude to what he had. His attitude isn't one of grasping, wanting more, or holding on to what he has, not even about using his equality with God for his own advantage or exploiting it for his own ends. Equality with God wasn't something to be sought or craved. As someone who was in very nature God, he didn't regard it as something to be grabbed at or as something he had to hold on to at all costs. Instead, he let it go. He went into status free fall. From being in very nature God, he humbled himself. He took upon himself the status of a slave. And as a slave, he suffered the ultimate degradation and humiliation of being crucified on a cross. It was impossible to start any higher than Jesus and impossible to sink any lower. In contrast to the fisherman's wife who wanted to reach up and be like God. In contrast to Adam and Eve who wanted to reach up and be like God. Those who thought the only way was up. Jesus is actually being God is all about coming down. Jesus reveals God. Not as one who holds himself aloof from us. Not as one who looks down on us from a position of infinite superiority not one who holds us down in our place so that he can feel better because he's so much more exalted than us. Jesus makes God known as the one who for our sake empties himself. As the one who for our sake pours himself out for us in love, even to the point of death. And not just any death, but death on a cross. This is the God whose greatness is expressed not in grasping, but in grace. Not in a closed fist to hold on to what he's got, to cling to the highest rung in the ladder and stop anybody else getting there. But the open hand to let go. The open hand to give 
rather than taking. A God whose status doesn't depend on keeping us in our place, but coming down to join us. To go even lower than we ourselves could possibly go. In order to lift us up to be with him. This is the God whom Jesus reveals. And we, says Paul, are called to have the same attitude, the same outlook, the same mindset, the same readiness to be humble. Doesn't come easily or naturally to us. In fact, the more insecure we feel about ourselves, the more urgently we look for things to bolster our sense of pride. The more somebody tells you how wonderful they are, you know that really underneath they're quite insecure and you know they're not quite sure that they believe it themselves. I like what C.S. Lewis had to say about humility. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's a lack of preoccupation about where I rank in the pecking order, how well I'm doing, who's doing better than me, or who's threatening to leapfrog my position in whatever league table it is I use to assess my status. It's about replacing the closed fist of grasping and holding on, or reaching up to the next rung on the ladder with the open hand of giving. And there's a play on C.S. Lewis's words as well. If I think of myself less... That makes me selfless. It is the attitude that Christ literally embodied when he humbled himself, when he emptied himself to become a human being, when he exchanged his throne for a cross for us, for you and me. It's an attitude that we are called to imitate. And humility is a, is a quality that doesn't sit easily with ambition. We had this discussion in the men's group the other week about ambition and doing well and whether it's right and whether you know, we, we, should, we should give things up or whether we should seek to progress. If you're naturally contented, a bit like the fisherman in Grimm's tale, you are unlikely to be driven by ambition. He was quite happy living in the shack, even though his wife was a bit, a bit of a, an awkward person to live, for, live with. Yet those of us who want to make the most of our lives... We have questions in our minds about this. Surely there's nothing wrong with wanting to do well, wanting to realise our potential, to make the most of the gifts and abilities that God has given to us. Surely if God has given me a character and a personality to do well, I should make the most of that. If God has given me gifts, shouldn't I use them to the best of my ability? If I don't, it's like having a Ferrari and only driving it down to Sainsbury's through the town centre to do the shopping. It's a complete and utter waste. And God doesn't want us to waste what we've got. And yes, of course, God wants us to do well. But we need to check our motivation. What is driving me? What's pushing me? Am I being driven by selfish ambition or vain conceit? Am I always looking to to elevate myself above other people? Who is number one in my life? What really matters to me? Is manoeuvring yourself into position for the next promotion more important than doing a good job at what you're doing now? Does your desire to have more prevent you from valuing what you have at present? In my work, do I look to serve others and honour God, 
Or am I at work actually just to increase my own status and serve my own interests? Whatever we do, we're called to do it well. Serving God doesn't mean that we turn our back on any opportunity to improve our lot or make progress. But honouring Christ means that whatever our status or position, we would never consider any task beneath us. And we would never look down on those who aren't at our level in the promotion ladder. It's possible to be successful, to have authority, to make things happen, to want to do well, and yet be humble at the same time. Remember, it's not thinking less of yourself. It is just thinking of yourself less. But... There is every possibility that that might have a negative effect on our progress up the career ladder. Our ability to climb that particular greasy pole. It would be dishonest of me to say, oh, that that, that won't happen. Because while we believe that God lifts up those who honour him, and he does, it's also true to say that it's often those who do cynically push themselves forward who make the quickest progress in the workplace. But then Jesus never pretended that following him would be easy or advantageous to us in worldly terms or that there would be no cost involved. What shall it profit a man, he asked, if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Boils down, I guess, to what matters most to you. Who it is that you're serving. Christ or your career? Is honouring Christ now more or less important than the next stage that we're hoping to achieve? Whatever job it is that you do, God has placed you in your office, on the shop floor, in the warehouse, in the classroom, wherever it is, it is your role to serve him there. You are his representative. And if we don't take our Christian faith and principles with us into the workplace and live them out there, then we are abandoning the workplace to mammon, accepting that profit margins matter more than people, compartmentalising our Christian faith so it doesn't impact on who we are and how we live in the very place where we spend most of our waking life at work. So yes, it would be dishonest of me to pretend that there's no cost involved, no price to pay if you're following Christ. Of course there is. But equally, if you model your life on the fisherman's wife, you may find yourself gaining the whole world at the expense of your soul. We worship and follow someone who made himself nothing for us, who emptied himself completely for us, who descended from the pinnacle of divinity to the depths of degradation for us. Whatever price we pay for following him, it's less than the price he paid for us. See, there's every possibility, actually, that Paul was writing to a church where there were people who were struggling with the cost of discipleship. Philippi was a city of opportunity. It was a place where if you had an eye for business, you could make real progress. 
It was a major trading route. There was a port nearby. Its status as a Roman colony meant that there were really good tax breaks if you operated out of there. It consciously modelled itself on Rome, which meant if you were a business-minded, shrewd woman like Lydia, there was no better place to ply your trade. It was a place to get on. It was a place to make money. It was a place to be successful if you weren't a Christian. But if you were a Christian, then it wasn't so easy to get ahead. What if following Jesus was costly to you? Far more than the money you just put in the offering on a week-to-week basis. If you were a Christian, you were less likely to prosper. What about if Peter Oakes, a a guy who's done a a study of Philippians, says, what about, imagine a baking family, and and they're they're making a living, and they're doing quite well, they become Christians, and one of the things they do is take the household gods that they've had on their trade counter down, because they don't worship anymore. People come in, what's happened to the gods? We become Christians. Oh, don't like that very much. Because the whole of life circulates around as is based upon the fact that, you know, worshipping in the idol's temple was a social way of life. It's where your friends were, it's where your support network was, it's where your customers came from. And if you took a stand against that, you stood out like a sore thumb. And there were people in the town who became Christians who found themselves suffering financially who found themselves losing out on opportunities, who found themselves up against it because they were losing their customers, who were losing their jobs, who were finding that actually being a Christian in practice was really, really hard. And there were those who were contemplating actually just dropping it all because it was costing a bit too much. That is part of the background of the situation that Paul was likely addressing when he wrote to Philippians, people who are finding the cost of saying Jesus is Lord in practical terms on a day-to-day basis was so high they were wondering whether it was worth it or not. So Paul knew what he was doing when he wrote of Jesus coming down to the lowest place, to the place of shame and disgrace on the cross. Because if that is where Jesus went for us, That is the direction we might have to go in following him too. But Paul also assures his readers that after Christ descended to the depths of us, God exalted him to the highest place, giving him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue should confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Every tongue. The day will come when those who oppose the Philippian Christians, those who rubbish the Christian faith now, will have to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ the one whom we are called to follow. And the exaltation of Jesus to the highest place does entail the ultimate vindication of those who acknowledge his lordship here and now. Those who don't bow the knee willingly today will be forced to bow the knee on judgment day and declare that Jesus is Lord. But the challenge that Paul sets before the church and the challenge that comes to us is, who do we serve? on a day-to-day basis. If we say Jesus is Lord, do we serve him in our midweek position? Or do we serve mammon? Which matters more to us? Our status and standing and progress in society or our standing before God? 
It's a disconcerting and uncomfortable question that Paul sets before us. And it's a question only you can answer for yourself. The challenge Paul's issues to us all today is the same posed by Joshua centuries before. Choose this day whom you will serve. And choose how you will serve him.